Now we get part two of the message from last Sunday. If you didn't hear the message last Sunday, make sure you go online uh, to our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and make sure you pull that sermon up. We're looking at an event, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's recorded in all four Gospels. It is the one event outside the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. Therefore, it must be very, very important. And what we have is the account of the feeding of the 20,000. Uh, now, I know you probably refer to it as the feeding of the 5,000, uh, but uh, you and I know the Scripture says that when Jesus took those uh, two fish and five barley loaves, He fed uh, 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children, so probably there was somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people that were fed with one sack lunch. Now, it probably doesn't come as any surprise to you, Vera, that I have not changed my preaching very much, and that is I'm still just like Jesus. He'd been preaching all day so that people were hungry. He's a long-winded preacher. I've tried to be like Jesus my whole ministry, and so I've, I've followed suit with him. So this is part two of that one story that leads into the next. We're going to pick up in Mark chapter 6, verse 41. Mark chapter 6, verse 41. He's fed the crowd. They've all been filled. And if you remember, we were making connections between this event of the feeding of the 20,000 with the event that happened in the Exodus when God fed the children of Israel uh, with uh, the manna which came from heaven and then with the quail. Making that connection between what Jesus is doing now with what he did as being God, uh, back in the days of Moses. Now, in verse 41 of Mark chapter 6, And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples uh, to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. Uh, it reminds me of the passage of Scripture that says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even that which we can imagine. God always supplies our every need according to His riches and glory. You rest assured, dear friend, that God has promised to give you whatever you need to accomplish His will, plan, and purpose for your life. Then in verse 43, And they took up, Twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. So all ate until they were full, and then the disciples went out and took up the, uh, the leftovers. Now, remember, it just started out with two fish and five loaves. Everyone's ate and filled, and there's even more an abundance that Jesus gave, and it took up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now the question is, why the 12 baskets of leftovers? Glad you asked that question. In Greek, there, the Greek language is very specific about uh, words and what they mean, and when you see the word basket here, the word that's used for baskets, the 12 baskets, uh, it is a particular type of basket. It is a small basket. It is just enough for a one person to have a meal. So it is a like a lunch sack. So they took up 12 baskets. 
small baskets. Now, why the 12 small baskets? Well, you know the answer to the question. That is, there were 12 disciples, and they had been busy. They had not had time to eat. They were distributing the food to everybody else. And so now uh, there are 12 baskets, just enough for a meal, one for each disciple to take care of their needs. Now, why is that important? I'm glad you asked the question. Since this ties in to the events of the Exodus, I would remind you that when God sent the manna, he told the people they could go and gather enough manna for what? Just that one day. Whatever they could eat in that one day. And if they tried to gather more than what they could eat in that one day, what happened to it? It's full, got worms in it, they, could, they couldn't eat it. Uh, so he says, you just get what you need for that one day. Is that significant or is that important? Yes, it is. In the model of prayer that Jesus gave us, he said we are to pray and ask, Lord, give us this day, this day, our daily bread. What is he teaching us? We are to trust God for each day. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, we're not to take any thought for tomorrow about what we will eat, what we shall wear. Don't take any thought about any of the cares of tomorrow because you can rest on this, he says. There's going to be problems tomorrow. Each day has its own trouble. But he says, I have promised you, I will meet the need that you have in the moment. That's why God, when Moses asked him, when God told Moses to go tell the Pharaoh to let his people go, Moses says, and whom shall I say has sent me? In other words, what is your name? And God said to tell him, I am that I am has sent you. Now notice he says, I am. Now we know he's the eternal God who was, he's the eternal God that will be, but he identifies himself as the I am. That is, he is the ever-present God that is taking care of all the details of this world. He's taking care of all the details of your life in this moment. He is the I am to you. And when you get to the next moment, guess what? He's going to be in the next moment. When you get to that next moment, he is going to be the I am. He is the sustainer. He is the giver and the sustainer of all life and all that is needed. So uh, whenever the disciples took up the, the baskets, there was just enough to take care of them for that day. And Jesus is teaching them, trust me, each moment of each day. Don't worry about what's ahead. I'm already there. I've already made provision for that. You just take care of being faithful, being obedient, and trusting in me in the moment. So much of our days is spent worrying about what might be. And we worry and we're anxious, always thinking about, what if this happens? What if that happens? I know what's going to happen. I know this. And the reality is, there's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do to alter it. So what you have to do is you have to learn to live in the moment 
trusting Christ each and every step along the way. So uh, uh, Jesus is teaching us over and over again that we're not to worry, not to be anxious. In fact, had a conversation at one of the uh, uh, dinners we had. I think it was a Christian that I think asked the question. Uh, he asked me, he said, well, Tim, let me ask you this question. It, it, is anxiety a sin? Something along those lines, right? He said, it, 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 is anxiety a sin? Well, you might be surprised at the answer. Yes, it is. It's one of the greatest sins. Anxiety is a lack of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The just are to live and walk by faith and not by sight. If you're doing that, you can't be anxious. You're trusting in Him. I want you to notice or to realize the Scripture teaches anxiety is not just an emotion. It is not just a, 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 a psychiatric disorder. Anxiety, according to Scripture, is sin. Sin. And you've got to deal with it accordingly. So he's teaching the disciples here, even in this uh, account of the fish and the loaves, that you are to trust me in the moment to provide for you every, every need. Remember, he's just sent them out two by two. And he's told them, don't take anything with you. Don't take extra day's rations. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take anything with you. Just trust that I will provide. And that's how we are to live. Well, so they've had this account where they've taken up the 12 baskets, and they, they, now the disciples are going to be fed. I like that. Now, but it's not the end of the story. Because there's another thing that happens next that's connected to the story of the fish and the loaves. Oftentimes, you see these as two separate things. And yet, the Scripture ties them together. Let's see how that happens. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and to go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitudes away. Now notice, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. He commanded them. It wasn't, guys, if you feel like doing it. He said, guys, get into the boat, head over toward the Bethsaida. He's the one who instructed them, commanded them to get in the boat to go to Bethsaida. What's important about Bethsaida? They're going to go on the Sea of Galilee from where they are down to Bethsaida. It's a little bit of a ride in the boat, about, about uh, seven miles. And Bethsaida, remember, is where Peter and Andrew are from. We know that at least four of the disciples were fishermen. It could have been up to seven of them that were fishermen, and Bethsaida was their hometown. That's where they were originally from. Now, they ended up moving to Capernaum during the ministry of Jesus, but Bethsaida was their hometown. What's significant important about that? They knew these waters. They had lived on these waters. They had fished on these waters. They knew where every nook and cranny was in the Sea of Galilee, between where they are and Bethsaida. They had spent hours and hours and hours and hours out there on these waters. So it's home turf. So he says, you uh, go before to the other side of Bethsaida, and then he sends the multitude away. 
And when he had sent them away, what is Jesus doing? He departed to the mountain to pray. Now Mark records three specific times in the life and the ministry of Jesus that he comes aside to pray. The first time is just before he calls his disciples to be followers of his. The last time that we see where Mark makes a point of Jesus coming apart to pray is there in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's getting ready to go to the cross. And the other time we see him praying is right now. So in other words, it was the most significant events in the life of Jesus that Mark chooses to highlight Jesus in prayer. Now remember, where is Mark getting his information from? Well, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the physical person he's talking with to get his information is Peter. Remember, Mark is getting all of his information from Peter. Peter took Mark under his wing and, and mentored him and discipled him. And so he's getting his information from Peter, who's one of those disciples that are in this boat. They're in the boat rowing while Jesus is praying. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus, he was alone on the land. So it's now dark, it's now evening time, and the disciples are just halfway across the sea. They're just halfway. They're about three and a half, four miles out. They've been rowing for a good while, not making very much progress. While they're out there rowing in the middle of the sea in the evening, Jesus is up on the mountain and he's praying. Now, what's he praying? Don't know. He's probably praying for himself. He's praying for the glory of the Father. He's probably praying for his disciples. Verse 48, And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now it was about the fourth watch of the night. Now I find that fascinating. The fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's the darkest part of the night. There is a storm out on the Sea of Galilee. The winds are blowing contrary to them. They should have been to Bethsaida by now, but they, they're not there because they're facing this big headwind. They're making very little progress. They're only halfway there. They're about four miles out onto the Sea of Galilee. It is dark night. There's a storm. The waves are rolling. The wind is howling. And yet, from four miles away, Jesus in the darkness sees them. Do you think physically He could see them? No. These are the eyes of omniscience. These are the eyes of God who always sees us. That's encouraging. That's convicting. Every good thing that nobody else knows that you've done, I want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ has seen it. And because He's seen it, one day He's promised there's a day coming when you stand at the judgment seat of God and everything that you have done out of love for Him and love for others, you're going to be richly rewarded. But He also, my dear friend, 
sees us in our sin. And the thing is, He not only sees what we do in our sin, He knows why we've done it. He knows the motive of our heart. He not only sees our outward actions, He sees who we really are and why we do all the things that we do and why we don't do the things that we don't do. He sees us. I find comfort in knowing there's never a moment I'm outside of His sight. Never a moment I'm outside of His sight. Not only that, He's promised He would never leave me, He would never forsake me, He'd be with me always. And He demonstrates that right here. So, uh, He saw them straining at rowing. Now, these guys, remember, this is their home turf. This is their home waters. They had gone the stretch of water many, many, many times in their life. But they have never seen a time like this. They are straining, exerting great work at their rowing, and they're not getting it anywhere. But notice again, he saw them straining and rowing, for the wind was against them. Now, they had been in a storm before, but the last time we saw them in a storm, Jesus was in the boat. Remember? Now, he was, he was fast asleep, and they woke him up and said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Now they're out there by themselves. Jesus isn't in the boat. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he, being Jesus, came to them. Now, how did he come to them? Did he get in another boat? What? Nope. Walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Wow. The other day I was watching, quote, Christian television. It's actually unchristian television. But, but I was watching one of those shows, and there was one of these charismatic guys out there that was doing some supposed healing and this, that, and other stuff. And, and he said, man, wasn't it miraculous? Wasn't it amazing? Yeah, try that. When, when's the last time you ever saw one of those? When did you see Benny Hinn go out to the beach and just start walking across the water? You ever saw that? I, I never said, I didn't even see him try to do it in a little kiddie swimming pool. Yeah? No, they can't do that. The only one who does this is God Himself. Now, remember, it was the Holy Spirit of God. It was God back in the days of creation, whenever Jesus, He's the one who spoke creation to being, when He said, Let there be, it was God then the Holy Spirit who hovered over the surface of the waters and brought everything to be into being. Well, if he could hover over the surface of the waters and bring all things into being, it's nothing for him then to walk on the waters. Now, how do you think the, uh, the, the disciples, how do you think they're feeling about this? How are they feeling about it? Terrified! Scared to death. In fact, the Scripture is going to tell us in a minute. They look out and they see this white figure coming across the water and, and they say, It's a ghost! And, and they use the word, they screamed. And the word screamed is, Scream to the top of their voices. Couldn't believe it. I'd started to do it, but I won't. But they just really just screamed because they were terrified. Because after all, if you were out there in the midst of the storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, would you be expecting anybody to come walking across the waves. No. They're trying to read us. That is a ghost. Now, somehow that made sense to them. It's a ghost, but they couldn't believe it was Jesus. Sometimes when we're afraid, we can make all the things that seem absolutely absurd 
absurd be the things that we think are going to happen? Well, Jesus came, notice He came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Would have passed them by. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are some, I looked up you know, several different commentaries, and there's some commentaries that I read that said, this is if Jesus just strolling along, He sees them, He's not concerned, as if He's just going to walk on over to the other side of Bethsaida. I don't think that's what it had in mind. I don't think that's the correct interpretation of the passage. In fact, one of the things we've learned about studying the Bible is you always have to compare Scripture with Scripture. You draw your interpretation from the Word of God. So that when you see something show up in a passage of Scripture, you say, that sounds a little bit odd. I don't know exactly what he means by that. What you do is, you look other, up other times in the Bible. Just pull out your little concordance. Okay, It's got all the words of the Bible in it and where they appear. Pull out your concordance and look up other times when that phrase or that word appeared. So that's what I did. So I looked up the phrase, pass by. God passed by. Here's what I discovered. In Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18, Moses, remember in the fish and the loaves, he's making connection between Jesus as God and what he's doing in that day with what he as God did in Moses' day. Remember? It's the connection between the two things. Uh, so now we see Moses, and, he, and Moses cries out to God and says, Please show me your glory. Let me see you as you are. Then he, God said, I will make all my goodness, all my glory, all my wonderful divine attributes, all that I am, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim, notice what he says, I will have all that I am passed before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now notice the word Lord. It is in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So what have we learned that means? That is actually the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh. I am. So he says, I will let my goodness, all my goodness, pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, the I am, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will ha be compassionate, or have compassion, on whom I will have compassion. But he says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, while my glory, that which I am, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. That's good. Moses says, I want to see you as you are. Show me your glory. He says, you can't handle the glory. You can't handle the glory. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock. I'll put my hand over your eyes. I will cause all of my goodness. I will cause all my glory to pass by. 
You can see my hinder parts while I pass by. That's the first time I saw that phrase, God passing by, and He's passing by so that one could see His glory. Second time I found it. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. God is having an encounter with Elijah. Elijah has been in hiding from Jezebel. He's now in a cave. God shows up. He's telling him you need to get out of this cave. Beginning in chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. Then he said, God said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. Elijah is discouraged. Now this is the guy that was on Mount Carmel that defeated all the prophets of Baal. Then he heard one woman was after him. And he did what any good man would do when he hears the woman's after him. He ran. <laughs> he ran and ran and ran and ran and fell, fell down by the brook chair. The God took care of him there and whatever. Now he's gone over to this mountain. He's, he's hiding in this cave, hiding from this woman that's after him. He needs encouragement. He needs strengthening. He needs to remember who it is he's serving. He needs to remember who's the one who's in control of all things. Who's the one who's in control of his life? So, so God tells him, Elijah, get outside this cave. Go stand outside. And then the Lord himself passed by him so that he beheld the glory of the Lord. Now, Mark chapter 6, verse 49 and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, screeching. For they all saw him and were comforted. Nope. They saw him and were troubled. Saw him and were troubled. I've got to give you this one. Oh, you can't, you're going to start shouting here in just a second. I just know it. And he said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Now, you might have missed it. Let me give you the Greek word when, when it says, Whenever he first spoke, he says, be of good cheer. And then the Greek word here is ego amai. Or ego ami. Ego ami. Do you know what ego ami is? It's the Greek word for Yahweh. What he said is, take courage. Be of good cheer. I am. I am. Do you remember what he said back in the day? He said in the Old Testament passage we looked at, 
Exodus 33, 19, talking to Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, Yahweh, before you. What did He say to the disciples? I passed by you so you could see my glory. And I want you to know, I am the I am. I am God. Why don't they need to be afraid? I am is with you. Why be afraid? Why should you take courage? He is our courage. He's the I am. If you're in the presence of the I am, what reason do you got to be, to be afraid? Why should you be stressed out? Why should you be anxious? When I am is there, all that you need. So when the Scripture says Jesus was, would have passed by them, what it's saying is when you compare Scripture to Scripture with Moses and Elijah, He was letting those disciples... Behold His glory. Walking on the water that He created. Stating, as they should have known from the fishes and the loaves, He's the same God. The same I Am. You say, Brother Tim, how do you know that? Glad you asked the question. I want to give you the... I'll, get back, I'll go back and explain it. I, this is so good. Look in Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Give down Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Now, this is after the story of, of walking on the water when Jesus gets in the boat. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. See, Jesus, the scripture makes the connection between the story of the fishes and the loaves and the walking on the water. He says they were afraid. Why? because they had not understood about the loaves. What were they supposed to understand about the loaves? Remember, I laid it out for you last week. Jesus acts and does everything in this encounter exactly the way Moses and God handle things back in the wilderness. God supplying the manna. Moses dividing them up into groups. All of those things, he says, I, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. All those things we highlighted last week, he said they didn't get it. They just saw him feed 20,000 people with two fish and five loaves. Now they're out there on the sea in the midst of the storm. He comes walking out of the water and they're terrified. Why? Because they didn't get the lesson back here. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. They didn't get it because they didn't want to get it. Because the only thing they were thinking about back there with the fish and the loaves, and the only thing they're thinking about on the sea, is themselves. They were worried about their hunger back when they were with the multitudes. Now they're worried about their life and their safety in the water. What Jesus is saying is, guys, if I can take two fish and five loaves and feed 20,000 people, you just saw me do it. Demonstrate that I'm the same God that I was back there in the wilderness with Moses and the children of Israel. If I can do that, don't you think I can take care of this? But they didn't get it. Not just they didn't understand, 
They didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. Sounds like us, doesn't it? How many times has God showed up in our lives? How many times did we only get through that day because we knew God was with us? How many times in our lives when we didn't think there was a way and yet God somehow showed up and made a way? How many times have we sat and listened to someone share the Word of God with us? We've read it. We've studied it. We've heard it. But when the moment of crisis comes, we fold. Why? We heard it. We just never received it. We never really took it in. We heard it with our ears. It never became a part of who we are. We saw it as just some good, interesting story. We heard some preacher say some stuff, and amen, that's great, we got all fired up. When it came time to put it into practice and to live it out in faith, we don't do it. We give in to worry and fear and anxiety. Why? Because we were listening for the wrong reasons. The crowds kept following Jesus for the wrong reasons. They wanted to see the miracles. They wanted the healings. They wanted a demonstration of the power. They wanted to get all excited and fired up. But to take His Word into them, make it part of them, let it transform them, no. no. Say, Brother Tim, you sure you handling this passage right? I am so glad you asked those good questions. I sure am glad you hold me accountable and make sure that I'm, I'm teaching, not twisting Scripture. Well, let's see what Jesus says about it. In the book of John, chapter 6. John is t- telling us the story of the feeding of the 20,000. Okay, The story of the fish and the loaves. And then it says, after... Jesus had fed them. The following day, the next day. Now, he'd already dealt with, he's he's going to deal with those disciples out there in the boat, but then when they get back to land, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw there was no boat there except uh, that one of his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came on on, uh, from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So he says, there are all the people together there, they're wanting to make Jesus king. Because he gives them free breakfast. We'll never go hungry again! They're on the farm, come on, give us some more bread. So they're back at the place, close to where he had fed them. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, not because you saw what I just did in the fish and the loaves and understood the connection between what he's doing now and in Moses' day, trying to tell you, I am the I am, but because you ate the loaves and released, all you want from me is a free lunch. That's all you want. Now notice the teaching based on the miracle. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set a seal on Him. Therefore they said to Him, now notice, they have just 20,000, two fish, five loaves. He just walked on water. What sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Can you believe that? They had seen Him heal. They had seen the fish and the loaves. They probably heard the disciples talking about Him walking on water. And then what were they asking for? Give us another sign, we'll believe. Another sign. Always looking for a sign. Have you ever prayed and said, God, if you'll do this, I'll believe? No, you won't. You'll just want more. Give us a sign, we'll believe. How does Jesus deal with that? Glad you asked. Verse 31. I want you to see, I'm not making this stuff up about the connection between Jesus and Moses, okay? Our fathers ate man in the desert. Ah, oh, see what Jesus is talking about? I provided manna for you in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. People said, Moses gave us bread. No, he did not. Who gave the bread? The I Am. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is... He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says the true bread is the bread that comes down from heaven, gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Now they're still thinking in terms of the physical bread. And Jesus said to them, one of the great I am statements, the seven I am statements in John God, John's Gospel. I am. He starts with ego a me. I am. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. I want to read this to you. I want to read the rest of the story, okay? Starting in verse uh, 47 of John 6. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, the question is, what does it mean to believe? The only way to have everlasting life is to believe in him. What does that mean? Glad you asked. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it, 
and not die. Brother Dean, that's the answer to the question you just asked me before the service. He asked whether the children of Israel that were wandering in the wilderness, where there were believers, unbelievers, whatever, he says, they ate, the ones who ate the manna died. But what does he say? This is the bread that comes down from heaven. He just says, I am the bread that one may eat of it and not die. They all died. They're apart from God. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, okay, now he's explaining what it means to believe in him. You believe in him, verse 47, you have everlasting life. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. He who eats, verse 3, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, lives, dwells in me, and I in him. I gotta sum all this up. Alright. It's great teaching. You gotta hear this. He says, You've got to eat my flesh. You've got to drink my blood if you're gonna have eternal life. What does that mean? They said, how can anybody eat his flesh? In fact, if you go on reading a few verses down, from the time he told them that, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have everlasting life. It says, they all turned away from him and walked away. So I can't do that. So that then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are y'all going to leave too? Y'all going to leave too? When Alma speaks up and says, Lord, where else can we go? You're the only one who has the words of life. So what does it mean? Glad you asked. It goes back to what it means to believe in Him. To believe in Him means more than understanding that what that says is true. He says, to believe in me to everlasting life is you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're thinking, you want us to be cannibals? No. Jesus was using an idiomatic expression from that day and time. An idiomatic, in every language or whatever, you've got idi- idioms, kind of colorful languages that you and I know what we're talking about, but nobody else knows what we're talking about if they t- take it literally. For instance, back in the day when I was growing up, we used the word groovy. See, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But back in the day, <laughs> we knew what we were talking about. Okay? Hey, uh, oh, man, that's righteous. Yeah, well, he's not talking about living a good life. But righteous is something else. Yeah. Eat my flesh and drink my blood is this. You've got to take all that I am in to you. 
You've got to receive me. Literally, the idiom goes, it means you've got to commit completely. You've got to surrender everything. You have to die. Who you are has to die so that you take all of me into you so that the only thing that remains when you die is Him. The disciples didn't get it because their hearts were hardened. They heard but didn't receive. Jesus said, you've got to eat the bread of life. You've got to eat the flesh and blood of Jesus. It's not talking about communion, folks. It's not, it had nothing to do with communion. It's being faithful, yielded, surrendered, and committed fully to Christ alone. As the only one who can give life and the one who becomes your life. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. The Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ to live. So what's the bottom line? Jesus has just shown them His glory. He has just reenacted for them everything that He did for the children of Israel back in Moses' day. And then He's let His glory pass by His disciples. For only God, only the I Am, can walk on water. As just a side note, I wish I had time to flesh this one out. You're so stressed out over the storm in your life, what I want you to understand is God brought the storm or God allowed the storm as to be the pathway that He can come to you in the midst of it. Amen. That's good preaching. I wish I could go there. Yeah. The thing's not there by accident. But what you got to understand is the disciples were all worried about them and how the storm was impacting them. They were concerned back there about their hunger. What they didn't understand is, God had all of that arranged, remember? He sent them. He commanded them to get in the boat and go into the storm. He sent them out there. Why? Because it was going to be through what He did in the midst of the storm that He was going to reveal His glory. It wasn't even about them. It was about Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand in the midst of your storm. It's not there by accident. Everything we're walking through at this moment has gone through the hands of our Heavenly Father. And He's arranged exactly what's going on in your life. Everything from sickness to disease to bad refrigerators you broke down. we got a family going through that. He's arranged absolutely everything in your life so He can reveal the greatness of all that He is to you and through you. It's all about Him. I want you to understand this in closing. He is still the I Am. 
still the I am. That which He has always been, that He will be right now, and that He will always be. So what do we need to do then? Take courage. And be of good cheer. But Lord, look at the thing. He said, I am. And that's enough. That's enough. Hold fast. The only way that works, the only way that becomes a reality in your life is for you to eat the bread of life. To take all that He is into yourself so that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you and through you. And that life is not just life for today. It is Dr. Lynch, if you remember the word, Zoe. Eternal life. Do you know that you know 